Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I want to talk with you about blushing and the anxiety about blushing. But first, let me just talk about myself for a bit. I've always had an intense fear of public speaking. Since I was a young child, I remember just being terrified of giving speeches in school. I, I can remember probably every single time I had to give a speech or every single time I had to get up on stage to do something. For whatever reason, I've always been a sort of a, a split person in that part of me wants to be on stage and wants to have that fun experience of doing something on stage. But then there's this intense fear around it. For instance, I grew up playing the trumpet and I was asked to play a solo at the at the end of the year concert in the fifth or sixth grade. It must have been sixth grade. And I was asked to make, give this solo about, I don't know, like in January or something. The musical director said, Kirk, I'd like you to play a solo at the end of the year concert, which, which was probably in May or June or something. And then I proceeded to every night have a hard time falling asleep because I was worrying about this solo that was coming up in months in advance. And and the solo was actually really simple because, of course, sixth grade band, you're not going to give someone like a Dizzy Gillespie solo or something. It was probably, I think it was like just this really simple kind of long note oriented solo that I could play in my sleep. But for some reason, you know, well, for for psychological reasons, I was terrified about it. And so, I you know, why would I play the trumpet when I am terrified of being on stage? Why would I agree to play the solo? Because that was the other thing that I'll never forget is I was, so as the, as the day uh, arrived, I was terrified all day. And as we were about to go out on stage, I remember we were, so we're in grade school in sixth grade and we were playing in that big high school. And, uh, I just thought, Oh my God, we're, we're at the high school and I'm playing this solo. And I remember the musical director turning to me and he, and he said, Kirk, you know, you seem a little nervous. And I was like, um, yeah, I'm a little nervous. And he said, you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, it's, it's okay. And I wanted to kill him because I didn't realize at the time that it was voluntary. If And I thought, oh my God, if you would have told me in January that I could opt out of this, I would have because, or I would have opted out the next day because I couldn't sleep that the night you told me about it. And I remember just thinking how ironic that, or whatever adjective we put to it, how funny, not in a ha-ha way that... I could have backed out and just um, avoided this whole thing, and 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 at the time I was just like, well, screw it. I you know I've I've worried about it for five months. I might as well go up there and do it. Um, so I, I can remember all these little. I can remember giving a speech on lions when I was in the seventh grade. I can remember giving a speech on Switzerland. I remember in the fourth grade having to recite the Gettysburg Address and just being terrified of it. And that anxiety extended into my adult life. I was, I was, for instance, I've talked about this on the podcast before, when I was asked to teach for the first time by Paul David when I was 26 and, and had just graduated with my master's, I was terrified. I was pacing around my apartment 
trying to figure out a way to get out of it, but also fighting with another side of me that really wanted to try, really wanted to see if I could teach and really wanted to not let Paul David down, my, my mentor at the time. And I, uh, almost called him and called the whole thing off, which may have resulted in me never becoming an instructor, which may have resulted in me never becoming a podcaster, because being a teacher directly led, led to me being a podcaster. And so uh, I, you know, the, the part of me often wins out that says, come on, Kirk, do it. But it's not without its, its toll on me. It, it must, you know, as I, as I talk about it out loud now, I must have a so I'm, because I have such an intense fear of being on stage. I much have a I must have a slightly more intense desire to be on stage. <laughs> so, um, like the next, I have sort of forty six now. So I've 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 tackled a lot of my fears about being on stage to the point now where a lot of the things that used to just completely terrify me. I can do with relative ease now, except for being on stage, like stage stage, like in a theater, giving a performance that still freaks me out in my head. And so I've been thinking lately about doing improv or something to see if I can overcome that fear. Uh, Maybe there's some desire for me to have my blood pumping hard or something. And, and fear is, is one of those things that gets it going. But anyway, so my, my fears, I'm very familiar with the feeling of terror in front of groups of people. And I, I don't use that word lightly. I mean, it's, it's extreme terror. For the first 15 years that I was an instructor, I was you know uh, teaching in graduate school, I would actually take beta blockers, which is a, a, a medication that uh, stops you from shaking and having, you know, and sweating when you get nervous. So you're cognitively nervous, but your body doesn't show it when you take beta blockers. I would take this medication years after I started teaching, and I don't take it anymore. Occasionally, I'm, I, I might take it if I have to give a big presentation to a lot of people or something. But so um, I'm very familiar with that fear and that terror. And as I think about it right now, I even get a little sweaty palmed. But the one, one of the aspects that I hated about my anxiety was when other people noticed it. There's just something and I have this deep fear that I'm guessing other people have uh, maybe as well is, is this that you know, there's this fear of being, of uh, making a fool out of yourself in front of a crowd of people. But then there's this other fear of having people notice that you're afraid, right? I, I hated that uh, f- feeling of, or that n- the knowing that my hands were shaking as I'm holding my notes <laughs> and my my piece of paper is like, you know, rattling in my hands. Or when my voice would shake, you know, was, uh, 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 you know, I hated that feeling and, and would take the beta blockers sometimes to get rid of that. And I also hated blushing. I hated being in front of a group of people and just blushing and sweating profusely because it made me uh, doubly humiliated because not only was I making a fool out of myself, perceived fool out of myself, but I was also perceiving that other people were perceiving that I was afraid of, of making a fool out of myself, which is, you know, a, a double fear. And so, it, you know, it's interesting because 
in some ways, I have no fear of making a fool out of myself in front of a small group of people. If I'm with friends or if I'm just you know with one person, even if I don't know the person, if if I just met the person, if I make a fool out of myself in front of one that brand new stranger, I don't care. I don't really get nervous. There's just something about being on stage. Right now, presumably there are thousands of you listening to this podcast, and somehow I am not nervous at all. I'm like completely at ease with that. Although, as I imagine, thousands of people listening right now, it does kind of freak me out. But there's just something about being in front of a crowd, and so that's where that's where I would blush and where I would hate to blush. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about blushing because actually a patron wrote in and asked me to talk specifically about blushing. So I'm I'm not only necessarily going to just talk about social anxiety, but I'm going to talk about blushing. I'm going to talk about the physiology. I'm going to read the patron email. I'm going to talk about the DSM-5. I'm going to talk about research and evolution. And I'm also going to provide a pretty comprehensive treatment model for how to help someone with, with their blushing anxiety. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, I'm a professor, and I'm also a known blusher. This email is from a patron, uh, anonymous patron, wrote, Hey, Dr. Honda. <laughs> Dr. Honda. Hey, Dr. Honda. To many people, this may seem like an innocent or insignificant thing, but to those of us who suffer from it, it has a very detrimental impact on our lives. I know that it's related to social anxiety, and you already did an episode on that, but there are lots of people with social anxiety that probably never blush. And although I blush at least 80% less than I used to, it still impacts my life, and I'm feeling serious anxiety right now even writing this to you because I'm afraid I'll jinx myself and it will come back as bad as it was when I was a teenager. I remember one time when I was about 19, I met a girl in the mall who I had dated a few times. She was very attractive, and I wasn't expecting to see her. She began to talk to me, and I turned so red in the face that as she was completing a sentence, I mumbled that I had to do something and walked away. I didn't look back, but I imagined she just stood there dumbfounded. Although I'm laughing as I write this, I wasn't laughing at the time. It took me weeks to get over it. Even thinking about it now makes me queasy. I think the reason I hate blushing so much is because it makes me feel weak. It shows the other person or people that as it shows the other person or people that as confident as I'm trying to appear on the inside, I'm still insecure and afraid. Even if I'm one one I'm sorry, even if I'm one hundred percent confident in what I have to say, if I start feeling that warmth in my face, I'll begin to back down because I know the vicious cycle is about to begin and I'll give the appearance of being intimidated. I want so bad to appear confident to people that even a hint of weakness terrifies me, which ironically makes makes it appear even worse. One of the things that helped when I was young was when, in the early days of the internet, I discovered an online forum for blushers. It felt so good to know there were so many people suffering like me. There was a time when I even considered getting an operation called endoscopic transthoracic sympathectomy, 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 that supposedly is is a magic cure, but the possible side effects scared me away. 
when, whatever the reasons, I'm, I'm a lot better than I was, but I still have a little ways to go. Perhaps I'll never get over the last little hump, but I guess I should be proud of myself that I got this far. But I'm sure there are probably listeners to your show who could certainly benefit from knowing they're not alone if they used to blush like I did. I hope you can find time to cover this topic. End of email. Well, anonymous patron, thanks for writing in. I think you describe this the syndrome of blushing anxiety pretty well. And this is my term, blushing anxiety, because this this episode is not about it's about blushing, but it's mainly about anxiety about blushing. Because everyone blushes and there's 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 nothing wrong with blushing, right? It only becomes sort of a problem for people when they have extreme anxiety about blushing, right? So that's that's mainly what we're talking about today, and that's mainly what he's talking about. the The anonymous patron here is that he uh, is he has a reaction to his to his blushing. Okay, I I read recently that uh, five years ago, twenty twelve, actually there was a a kid at the University of Washington near where I am recording this right now, which is actually where I went to get my bachelor's degree. A 20-year-old student at the University of Washington, Brandon Thomas, he killed himself because he, was, he, was, he had such intense anxiety about blushing. He actually jumped from his dorm, which is just awful. And his suicide note wrote, I am tired of blushing. It is exhausting to wake up every day and have to find little ways of avoiding blushing situations. So Brandon was just so terrified about his blushing and so self-critical or so avoidant of, of his blushing that he ended up killing himself because he, he's, he's just exhausted. He would wake up every day and he'd, and he'd think, how can I avoid situations where I might blush? So again, it's not the blushing that's the problem. It's the anxiety about the blushing. That's the problem. Similar to if you are terrified of flying, it's not, it's the flying isn't the problem. It's your, it's your anxiety about the flying, right? Just like for me, when I am terrified of public speaking, it's, it's not the public speaking that's the problem. It's, it's my terror about the public speaking. Okay, so let's, let's define uh, what blushing exactly is here. Well, there's a, there's a number of definitions, but there's, there's really two main ones that I found in the literature. Number one is blushing is a reddening of the face as a sign of embarrassment or shame. So again, a reddening of the face as a sign of either the emotion of embarrassment or the emotion of shame. Okay, the second definition is more general, and that's just an increase in facial blood flow during a heightened state of arousal. So again, just an increase in, in blood flow in the face as a result of a heightened state of arousal, which could be due to embarrassment or shame, but also could be due to other kinds of emotions that are arousing. All right, what's the physiology of blushing? What's, what's the body exactly doing? Well, the, the, in a nutshell, what I can say is that it's not really understood, just like many other psychological phenomena. We, the, we don't really understand we understand that blood vessels dilate and that you know red blood cells uh, are um, you can see essentially your blood through your skin and that's why you blush 
but we don't really understand why that happens. There's there's a lot of speculation, and we're, you know, there's some potential triangulation of of figuring out why we evolved this process or what it's due to. But but we really just are as a lot of things in the speculative area. But very specifically regarding the physiology, blushing involves an accumulation of red blood cells in the facial skin due to sympathetically mediated dilation of the blood supply in the arteries. So your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and dilates the, the arteries in your face, and then red, red blood cells accumulates, or there's, there's just an increase in red blood cells in your face, and then you can, then other people, depending on your skin color and depending on how much you're, you're, you're blushing, other people might be able to see it. It's often part of a sympathetic nervous system process, which also is characterized by an increase in heart rate, sweaty hands, a, de- a decrease in blood flow to the hands, and other kinds of sympathetic nervous system uh, autonomic reactions. Okay. The D- just a short little note about the DSM-5. Uh, it actually included blushing as a hallmark of social anxiety. So it, it, I don't believe it was in DSM-4, but uh, blushing has become basically a symptom of social anxiety. Okay. So let's talk about the history of the, the understanding of, of, um, of, of blushing. <laughs> I don't know why it took me a while to go. Okay. So let's talk about the history uh, of blushing. Actually, we can go back to Darwin. I mean, we can go way back to people talking about blushing uh, in ancient times, but in, in more recent times, which is perhaps more relevant to this conversation, we can go back to Darwin in 1872 when he published The Expression of Emotions in Man and Animals. A lot of people don't know this, but but Darwin in addition to his commentaries on and his observations and his careful documentation of different uh, species of animals and how they might evolve, he also taught. He also wrote a lot about in this book the expression of emotions. He was he was very interested in how we might have evolved emotions and how animals also express emotions, which you can imagine it was what was and perhaps still is controversial because it implies that animals have emotions. I remember when I was growing up, there was a very distinct uh, notion out there among the lay people that was told to me that animals don't have emotions, only humans have emotions. I think it was this this Christian notion that, you know, God created man and man is in God's image and animals are something different, right? And and we didn't evolve from animals, just that whole thing, right? So, because if animals have emotions, then when we kill them, it's bad. Or uh, if animals have emotions, then that makes them, them kind of human, which means they go to heaven or, you know, it just, it muddies the waters in, in, in certain circles. And so I remember being told by a lot of people that uh, animals are incapable of having emotions. And as a lover of animals, as someone who's had many pets throughout my life, and all you got to do is watch YouTube and and learn that all sorts of animals have emotions. I mean, even, even fish, you can tell, have emotions. It's really hard to tell emotions of fish because we are a different species who evolved to pick up on the emotional cues of 
animals that are closer to us in terms of our species. But you, you, you can see emotions in fish, fish enjoying things. And, but you can certainly watch videos of cats or elephants or dogs or mice, and you will see very clear indication of emotions. Plus, it doesn't make any sense that at least our close relatives wouldn't have similar experiences of emotion. Now, of course, it's impossible to even really understand whether or not different humans have the same experience of emotion because it's a very subjective experience, but I hope you get my point. Anyway, uh, Darwin was very interested in emotion, and he actually wrote about blushing. Darwin wrote about, you know, he's trying to figure out whether or not blushing was in other animals and and what it meant about human evolution. And Darwin said that blushing is, quote, the most human of all expressions. He, he wrote that because he, he observed that blushing didn't exist in other animals. Darwin said that it would be difficult to come up with a con- convincing functional explanation for blushing because... He was basically saying, like, it's it's going to be hard to come up with an evolutionary reason why we have, why we evolved blushing because he said, "quote Blushing makes the blusher to suffer and the beholder uncomfortable without being of of the least service to either of them." <laughs> so, in other words, Darwin's like, blushing doesn't make any sense because it just it just makes us feel more crappy about ourselves. And it makes the other person that sees us blush, it makes them uncomfortable. So why in the world would we evolve this blushing response, you know? Because there's other kinds of responses, right? Like if we cry, that often will evoke a sympathetic response in the other person. So you start to cry because you're sad or you're hurt or you're scared. And the person observing you crying, particularly if they're close to you, will actually come towards you and try to help you. Uh, or a child, right? You see a, a three-year-old child fall down, start crying. You instantly just want to go over there and help them. And so, so Darwin would look at that and say, like, well, clearly we evolved this, this crying response as a way of trying to get help from other people. Uh, I don't know if he actually said that, but I'm guessing he did. And But then when he looked at blushing, he's like, well, when you blush, it just makes other people uncomfortable. So why why would that happen? Now, what I would say is it makes people feel uncomfortable in the Western world, and maybe in other parts of the world it doesn't make that happen because in the Western world we have a particular set of beliefs and, and um, you know, mores that cause people to feel particular shame when they are when they blush uh, but I'll get more into that later okay um, but so I'm going to talk about the evolution and other kinds of things and other research but before we do that let's take a break all right we're back from the break if you haven't already please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com that's patreon.com go to go there become a, a patron of the podcast And then you get access to all of our premium episodes in which we do various different deep dives into various different things, including other kinds of social anxieties and that kind of stuff. Okay, so let's get back to evolutionary psychology. As all of you know, I have a problem not with evolutionary psychology, but I have a problem with much of the current speculation regarding it 
because it is not couched in speculation. It is stated as fact when the evidence that they use to to uh, bolster these quote unquote claims uh, or these claims, not quote unquote, but uh, the the data they use to to back their claims is dubious and very ex- exploratory, and uh, therefore the claim should be stated very clearly as speculation. So that's one gripe I have with evolutionary psychology. Uh, there there are plenty of claims in, in evolutionary psychology that I don't have a problem with. Very simple things like the example I often give is. We clearly evolved a psychological process that rewards us for eating fats, sugars, and salty things. We, as a human race, love fats and sugars and salt. And, you know, likely because we need those things to survive. And on the African savanna 200,000 years ago, uh, you know, 400,000 years ago, there wasn't much of that around. And so when, so we evolved that mechanism to reward us when we found it, but it was so rare that the chance of us coming across it was pretty slim, and so there was this balance to it. Whereas today, we can very easily and very cheaply find as much sugar, fat, and salt as we want, which causes us to gain weight and have other uh, me- medical problems. And so so it's it's just the... It's just claims like when we hear a, and I've talked about this in other episodes, when we hear a clock ticking that causes women to want to have a baby. I'm not even joking. That's like a research study that was published in a respected evolutionary psychology journal. Um, so that's one problem. Uh, the, the other problem I have with, with evolutionary psychology is that it, it's, it often ignores culture as a factor in human behavior. They will have long discussions about how they'll, they'll study a human behavior among a sample of humans. And one, they will just study, a, you know, a, often psychological research is done on college students in college campuses, often in the Northeast of the United States. And so they, one, will not recognize the fact that these are a very particular group of people and might not generalize to the human race. But they also will not recognize the fact that people are socialized and they learn things from their culture. And therefore, human behavior, ha- any any study of human behavior has to include a discussion of culture and has to at least talk about it. Now, that doesn't negate the evolutionary psychology study. It just means responsible authors of research need to at least recognize that. And in my evaluation of a a lot of research on evolutionary psychology, again, published in respectable evolutionary psychology journals, they won't even talk about it. Some do, absolutely, and I always commend them, at least I try to on the podcast, but uh, a lot of these uh, studies just, they don't even, it's like they're, I mean, every psychologist knows that there's a, there's such a thing called social psychology. There's such a thing called learning. There's such a thing called culture. And when they don't even discuss it in their article, you have to wonder why. And the reason why, in my speculation, again, just speculation, I haven't talked to them, I, but my speculation is that they're insecure about their findings and they really want to get published in an, and their, their field, they've chosen their field of evolutionary psychology 
And if they mention culture, they're worried that they're not going to get published in an evolutionary psychology journal because uh, because it, it sort of waters down their claim uh, to, to say like, well, here's what we observed in humans and here's why we evolved this. But, you know, maybe it has nothing to do with evolution and it, ha- and it has everything to do with culture. If you say that, then, ev- you know, evolutionary psychology dogmatists are going to say, well, you just completely discounted your entire argument because you just said it's potentially a complete, completely a result of culture, which, of course, it might be a complete result of culture, particularly when you're only looking at 50 people in Boston, you know, (laughs) anyway, and sometimes they have smaller sample sizes, but anyway, okay. So getting back to evolutionary psychology, uh, when we come, when, when we talk about blushing, it's such a universal human experience blushing that we have to wonder why we do that. Now, not everything has a functional evolutionary purpose. There are many things that we do universally as humans that, it doesn't appear as though those things have any we any evolutionary purpose. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but you, you can think of it like a vestigial thing, right? Some people think like the appendix is something that we just haven't really evolved away yet. Some people think it actually does have a, a absolute functional um, purpose. But you get my point. Is like maybe blushing is just this random thing that we just never got rid of, or it used to have a purpose long ago, but it doesn't have any purpose now or something. So so there's a possibility that that's true. Um, but if we were to speculate about what sort of function it has and what sort of adaptive function, why we would evolve this, this, this uh, physiological emotional response, we, uh, at first we have to look at uh, what other species have it and what the history would have been for humans regarding blushing. And in some ways, a, a functional explanation of blushing is problematic because the human race, you know, when we think about all humans on the planet, there's only some humans that have light enough skin to be able to, that you can even see blushing, Right. Particularly, so the whiter you are, the lighter your skin, the easier it is to see your blushing. And conversely, the darker your skin, the harder it is to see your blushing. So for many African people, African heritage people, African Americans, other people like that, they have, it's harder to see them blushing. Now, when you talk to them, they'll say they can feel themselves blushing, you know, they can feel it in their skin. And if their skin is dark enough, you can't actually tell that they're blushing. Or it's really hard to tell they're blushing. Like there might be some very slight imperceptible change in the skin tone, but but it's really hard. Whereas you take an Irish redhead <laughs> and with pale skin and they blush, you are going to see it in all of its glory. And so why – and the fact that we emerged out of Africa, our species – who, you know, presumably people with dark skin, why, how could we possibly have evolved this blushing response, particularly when other primates don't have the blushing response because they have, they have fur on their skin? Why would we, how, how, this doesn't make any sense, right? Well, there's, there's a few things that we could say. One is, is that other primates actually do have what we might call blushing, 
but it's not necessarily on their face. It's on other parts of their body that where their skin is exposed. So it might be on their bottom, actually, their behind, <laughs> their rear. It might have skin on it that might blush, that might indicate an emotional response or something. And so, so there's that. The other thing is that it, I don't know the uh, consensus in the, uh, uh, the, this field of science, but from what I understand, it, it's speculated, or maybe they know this, I don't know, that at first we actually didn't have dark skin in Africa. When, when we first started to lose our fur, our, our, the hair all over our body, early human species, we uh, at first had light skin because there's no reason to have dark skin at first because it, uh, the, the common ancestor of, of primate that us and chimps and bonobos came from, there was enough fur to cover the skin that you didn't need dark skin to protect yourself from UV radiation. And so at first we had light skin, or at least lightish skin. And then over time, humans evolved dark skin to protect us from the UV rays that were hitting us in, in Africa. And then later, as, as groups of, of humans left Africa and went up north to Europe, the, these people started to uh, lose that uh, dark skin because, again, one of the ideas is that we, because of dark skin in the northern latitudes, we weren't getting enough vitamin D from, from the sun. And so we uh, had... I don't know the exact terminology, but genetics is, were as such that lighter skin was favored. And so, and so that adaptation occurred within. Uh, so we had a, anyway, so the point is, 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 is maybe we evolved the blushing response during that period of time when we had first lost our fur or we were losing our fur. I don't know if we call it fur <laughs> hair. Um, but and still had lighter skin. So and then as some humans became darker skinned, the ability to see the blushing was lost. And then as those darker humans left Africa, the and the skin got lighter, then the blushing response was seen again. <laughs> it's funny to think about it that way, but anyway. Okay, so now, I, this is not my area. I'm not, I don't even know the, the field of studies of paleontology. <laughs> um, so uh, people who are experts in this could be going, Kirk, you're getting it all wrong. But from what I understand in the literature, this is how it's being explained to me. Okay, uh, what else can we say about evolution of blushing? It also seems that we, we seem to have evolved the, an acute ability to detect blushing. So they've, they've done research and shown that as humans, we are very good at detecting whether or not that, you know, very small changes in color in people's skin. We are, we are very good at detecting very small changes in, in how much sweat someone has on their skin, on their face, or the dilation of their eyes, or we're, we're extreme, we, we apparently evolved an extremely good detection system in terms of what is happening on other humans' faces. So, uh, so that lends itself to the hypothesis that 
blushing serves some kind of social adaptation. Not only do we blush under certain emotional circumstances, but others have a very acute ability to detect the fact that we're blushing. Okay, so there's a particular speculation of the evolutionary function of blushing that I like, and I'll, I'll present it here in my own words. The, the speculation, and again, it's just speculation because there's no way to test for this. We don't have a time machine to go back and study early blushing uh, mechanisms in early humans. So it's all speculation. But, but a lot of this seems to make a lot of sense to me. The speculation is that we evolved it, we evolved blushing as a signal to others, right? That's basically how I've been talking about it up to this point anyway. It's been hypothesized that blushing evolved as a signal to other people that we are concerned with their evaluation of us. So we're whenever we're worried, like, oh crap, did I just embarrass myself or did I just do something wrong? Or is that person thinking I'm stupid? Or is that person about to reject me? We evolved this blushing response to tell the other person that that's how we're feeling. We evolved it. We evolved blushing as a way to tell other people through our face that we are worried about their disapproval. And the idea goes is that when we signal to that other person that we're like, oh my God, are you disapproving of me? That it it provokes a response in the other person to reassure us that we're not going to be disapproved of. It, you know, as I was talking about crying earlier, when we evolved, we evolved the mechanism of crying to tell other people that we're hurt or we're scared or, or you know, we're, we're terrified or some other kind of, uh, or we're, you know, sad or something. And the tears coming, there's, there's no, there's no re some people come up with speculation like tearing uh, tears get rid of certain neurochemicals, which just sounds ridiculous to me. Te crying is clearly a social signal that you are suffering. I mean, think about when you're three years old and you start crying. It, it's a signal to parents that you're suffering. And when we see people crying, we are affected by it. It, it affects people deeply. When they they they've studied this, where they, they'll they'll hook you up to all sorts of machines and then. They'll show you videos of just random people crying, and and every most people that you know, other than psychopaths, have a pretty severe response to that in their body. And so, when people cry, we when when your two year old child cries, you notice it. You know, every parent knows this. The your your four year old daughter will be playing in the living room or the other room by herself, and you can sort of hear her playing with her dolls or something. And before long, you you completely ignore her play noises because you just learn to just uh, ignore that, and let, it just becomes background noise. You're, you're not paying attention to it. And but as soon as she starts crying, you instantly snap to attention. You just hear this little like, and then instantly you're like, huh? And like you jump up and run over there. And so we we clearly evolved this this. Not only this response of crying, but we evolved the ability to detect crying and to react to it. Well, blushing is the same thing, right? We evolved this ability to signal to someone else what our emotional, what our emotions are, and we also evolved this ability to to detect it. The problem is that people, you know, that Darwin was running into, is that 
we live in a society, in a Western society, that shames certain emotions. So, you know, Darwin was like, well, blushing doesn't seem to have any, doesn't make any sense because it just makes other people feel uncomfortable. Well, you could say the same thing about crying. Crying makes other people feel uncomfortable too. Why? Because we shame certain emotions. We're supposed, in our independent, individualistic, uh, pathologically individualistic society in, in Western society, we privilege independence. We privilege people who can cope on their own. We, we, we hate dependency. We think, well, you know, pull myself up by my bootstraps and uh, I don't need anyone's help. I can, I can manage it on my own. And every accomplishment I've ever made has been mine. And it's like, no, unless you live on an island by yourself, which I suppose is possible, pretty much everything you've ever done has, has been in the context of society and in the context of healthy attachments and in the context of people helping you. Not to say that that downplays your your accomplishments, it doesn't, but none of us exist in isolation. And, and when you isolate humans, they become quite weird people. When you put people in the hole in prison and you isolate them from other human beings, their brain starts to go wacky. And so, so because we pathologize emotion, because we pathologize dependency, when, when people cry or when, when people cry or when they blush— we we have we tend to have a mixture of feelings, including discomfort, because we shame both sadness and embarrassment. You know, it's like it's cool to not care, right? It's cool. In fact, the word "cool" you could argue comes from this this sense of blushing. When you blush, you get hot, right? You're hot in the face, and when you're cool, you're cool as a cucumber, and you're not blushing. That's what we privilege. We privilege people who don't have emotion and who don't care. I don't care about what people think about me. I'm not here to make friends. <laughs> That's what they always say in, in reality TV shows. And it's like, okay, you might not be here to be make friends uh, consciously, but deep down you are desperate for social approval. That's why you're on the reality TV show to begin with. And so so all these weird teachings that we give people basically make us – uncomfortable when other people are crying or when other people are blushing. I would speculate that in a tribal society back on the African savanna or in one of our smaller societies when we became an agricultural species, you know, we ran into the same 15 or 50 people every day. This We woke up next to the same people. We, we were born next to the same people. So, Everyone that we saw in our day, we had daily interactions with, and these people knew us forwards and backwards. They knew, they knew every time we took a number two. They knew the way our voice sounded. They know they knew our name. They knew our the the you know our dislikes. They knew who our parents were. They knew who our siblings. I mean, the everyone in a tribal society back in the old days knew each other forwards and backwards in a way that in our modern society we can't even conceive of. I can't even conceive of being around the same 70 people 
from from birth till death. That would just be so bizarre. I mean, right now, as I was talking about earlier, I'm talking to thousands of people, and it's just such a weird thing. You know, we we live in this wholly different society, and really, it's only been this way since perhaps industrialization, which drove us into cities. Because even maybe even a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, when we were mainly and most of us were farmers. We, it was probably very similar to that. And imagine the mental health benefits to that and the social benefits to that. Because in a tribal society, when you blushed, you couldn't run away. You couldn't, there was no chance of saving face in a, in a situation like that. That's another phrase, you know, that I think comes from it. Saving face, you know, your face gives you away. So say you're in a tribal society and you're 25 years old and you make a mistake and you start to blush in front of, you know, 10 of your peers, well, those peers know you forwards and backwards and have seen you do every single thing you've ever done in your life, the good things, the bad things, the in-between things. And so when you blush, it's just another thing that you're embarrassed about, right? And so, so you feel safe and secure in that blushing experience, and the people reacting to your blushing understand you well enough that they don't feel uncomfortable and they don't get freaked out by the fact that you're blushing. And so, you know, just imagine the the wide variety of, of how much you would know each other in this tribal society and how minuscule a particular blushing incident would mean to that overall experience with someone. However, in the society we live in now, which I might label the anonymous society, we often have only one chance or maybe just a couple chances to impress someone or to to try to get them to like us. And blushing kind of interferes with that, right? Because it, it indicates that you're freaking out, and particularly because of the way we teach ourselves in our culture that freaking out is a bad thing, being cool is a good thing. <clears throat> and so <clears throat> um, blushing becomes this very, I don't know, this very this very scary experience for people. Because again, imagine you're in a tribal society and you bump into someone and you start blushing. Well, that person has known you for 25 years and, and has seen you every day of your life. And when you blush, they're just like, oh, you're blushing, you know, you're, you're embarrassed. Okay, fine. But in our modern world, like with the, our contemporary world with the patron who wrote in, he bumped into this girl that he liked at the mall and in you know in this very real sense this might be the last time he ever interacts with her and he has this one chance to impress her and to to make her accept him and and not reject him and when he blushes he is worried that it's going to it's going to taint that that small little interaction because that's the other thing is in the old days, if you blushed in in front of someone, say you're embarrassed for five minutes, you're like, "Oh my god, I was blushing." Well, that's just for five minutes. for the, For the rest of the eight hours you're with that person, or sixteen hours you're with that person that day, you're going to realize, "Oh, well, they don't hate me and they don't reject me." Whereas the patron, when when he was nineteen and he's walking through the mall, he knows that they're probably only going to interact for a couple minutes. And so he better not blow it for this couple of minutes. And, and so that's the way a lot of our interactions are today. And it has, as I've talked about in other podcasts, this, this 
a societal reality has a lot of terrible effects on our mental health. There's no way, or I guess there's a way to, to test this. All you have to do is look at other tribal societies around the world, which they have, and actually I don't have the literature in front of me, but from my memory, and I could be wrong, tribal societies that live as the way we, similar to the way we did many years ago, or even just 100 years ago, tend to have a much lower incidence of many of the mental issues that we find in high prevalence in our in our industrialized city societies, things like depression, anxiety, and that kind of stuff. And so, so you just have to, so that's another way of understanding blushing from an evolutionary perspective is that it just signals to other people that you're embarrassed and that the, the other person, uh, if they weren't socialized to hate embarrassment the way that we do in Western society, uh, if they would, respond with care they would so in the old tribal days you you're walking along and you're carrying water in a bucket from the river and you trip and you and you you know all the water goes everywhere and three girls that you like see you trip and you blush and you look up and you go like oh my god that was so dumb and the three girls are are they laugh at you and then you walk away and you're like, man, that was pretty dumb. And I blushed. I feel really stupid. But then later in the day, those three girls are, you know, they're, they're still around and, and they're right next to you. And so they haven't rejected you. They, they'll, they'll still talk to you because they have to talk to you because there's only 50 people in the village. So, so the, the consequences to blushing was so much, um, was, was, uh, so much lesser. And, it was a good way to tell other people, oh, well, I actually, I guess I, I should, uh, you know, throw in the response. So, so you trip, you, you, the water goes everywhere, you blush, you smile, and the three girls see that you tripped, and they're like, ha-ha, and then they see you blushing, and they're like, oh, he's blushing, that's cute, and they come over to you and they help you. Okay, so, you know, that signal and response kind of thing. Anyway. Okay, so that's evolution. Uh, let's go into the research, but before we do that, let's take a break. Okay, we're back from the break. Let's talk about research now. There, there's a fair amount of research on blushing, which is interesting. There's, there's a that blushing has been has been researched a lot, not only in psychology, but also in evolutionary psychology, social psychology, cross cultural studies. They've looked at also the physiology of the brain neuroscience regarding social anxiety and amygdala and all you know all the various different little parts of the brain that have to do with social anxiety and and the nervous system the sympathetic nervous system blah blah, blah. so so there's a fair amount of research on on blushing and yet we still don't really understand why we do it <laughs> it, it it's just another example of the uh, i don't know the sort of uh, the things we will discover later on in science, 300 years from now, 400 years from now, we're going to look back and say like, oh, wasn't that quaint that they didn't understand blushing? But anyway, so there's there, one of the most important findings in the research that I come, came across, and this is in many studies and, and meta studies as well, is that people with high social anxiety, they see their blushing as much worse than is actually perceived by other people. 
This is extremely important to understand, particularly if you have anxiety about blushing and social anxiety. It's almost like body dysmorphia. They will study people who suffer from a lot of social anxiety and also suffer from a lot of anxiety about blushing. And then they actually observe them. And what they find is, you know, so they'll say, oh my God, I'm blushing. I'm blushing a lot right now, right? And from the outside, they'll say, actually, you're not blushing at all. Or, well, you're kind of blushing. But the person with social anxiety and anxiety about blushing thinks that their face is beet red, when in reality, it's much less than that. So, so now, there are some people who actually are blushing in reality and have an accurate rep, you know, a perception of that. But there's plenty of people who think they're blushing and are terrified about their blushing when, in fact, the blushing is either minor or non-existent. And, and again, that's why it's sort of like body dysmorphia. A person with anorexia looks at themselves in the mirror and sees that they are fat when, in fact, they are objectively the opposite of fat. When someone with anxiety about blushing uh, is standing there uh, perceiving what they're perceiving, they're hot in their face and they're thinking, oh, my God, I must be blushing severely right now. And from the outside, someone's saying, actually, no, you're not. And the person with, with anxiety about blushing will say, yes, I am. You're just trying to make me feel better. In the same way that you can go to someone with anorexia and say, oh, my God, you are not overweight. In fact, you're underweight. And the person with anorexia will say, oh, you're just saying that because you have an agenda to make me eat or something like that. And so so that's that's very important to know. I think that's that's an important thing to understand is that the anxiety about blushing for, for many people is actually completely independent of the fact as to whether or not they're actually blushing. Okay. Another uh, bit of research is that people who suffer from blushing anxiety assume that blushing always means that someone is embarrassed. So, so in other words, when, when some, when someone who doesn't have blushing anxiety, like I have anxiety about being on stage, but I actually don't have blushing anxiety. Um, I have death anxiety. <laughs> I've suffered from panic disorder in the past, and I've had PTSD and other uh, and anxiety related issues with regards to medical issues, as I've talked about before in the podcast that I've uh, mostly overcome. But I so I don't have a blushing anxiety, and so when I blush, because it happens all the time, I'm probably blushing right now as I talk about blushing. I. Or when I see other people blush, I guess I should say. When I see other people blush, like I have a friend who blushes a lot. And I was thinking about him as I was preparing for this episode. And since I don't have a blushing anxiety, when I see him blush, I don't assume I know what's happening in his in his mind. I don't assume that he's embarrassed. I, I assume that he's blushing, but I'm thinking, well, maybe he's embarrassed Maybe he's just hot. Maybe he's just having a hot flash. Because that's another thing. You, if you can go through menopause, and actually through your hot flashes, you can actually have a lot of facial flushing because, you know, it seems to make sense, right? But So when I see people blush, I don't assume they're embarrassed. Whereas people who have anxiety about blushing, they think blushing always means you're embarrassed. And so that's just another uh, bit of research that they found. Also... A, a, this one study, which is fascinating, they, through an experiment, they, they had people stare at one side of other people's faces. So 
they would have the subject and they would have another sort of probably a research assistant or something staring at like someone's left cheek. And then they would measure the blushing through various different optical and I think heat sensors and, and that kind of stuff. And what they found was that the cheek that was being stared at blushed more than the other cheek. <laughs> so, and I think Darwin actually talked about this too, that when you stare at a part of any of a part of your body anywhere, if, a, if you perceive someone else staring at a particular part of your body, it, it, it starts to blush and you, you have to know they're staring at it. it you know, st- if I just walked up from behind someone and stared at the back of their neck, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have a sensation. They have to have at least a, a, some kind of sense that you're staring at that particular part of the body. And I find this to be uh, both fascinating and so obvious because our bodies are this responsive thing to society. This is that whole point, right? We're not independent beings. We are a part of society. And I, I can just cause someone to blush on one cheek by staring at that cheek as long as they see me staring at that cheek. And so, um, so it's just another bit of sort of detail in the physiology. Okay. So that's the research. Now, let me talk about my conceptualization of, of blushing anxiety. So I've talked about this, the evolutionary psychology perspective that I enjoy regarding why we evolved blushing. We evolved it as a signal of embarrassment within a tribal society that would respond well to that embarrassment by coming to us and saying that we're, we're okay and we're acceptable. You know, the, the blushing signals the other person like, oh my God, are you going to reject me? And then the other person comes over and says, no, I'm not going to reject you because the blushing evokes that kind of response. So, so that's how it, it, you know, blushing evolved, uh, I would speculate. But why would, why would someone be terrified of blushing to the point of, of it becoming such a problem that they would kill themselves as that kid at the University of Washington did. Why would that happen? None of us, like I was saying earlier in our, at least in Western society, enjoy blushing. As I was saying, when I get up in front of a group of people, I don't want my hands to shake, I don't want my voice to shake, and I don't want to be blushing, even though I know cognitively that everyone is fine if they know I'm nervous. You know, there's nothing shameful about being nervous, right? But somehow I'm just terrified of them knowing about it. Well, why would someone be so terrified of signaling their embarrassment to someone else that they would take their own life? It just, it's an interesting thing, right? Well, I, the way I see it, it's a mixture of social anxiety a specific phobia of blushing and also PTSD. So, so let me, and I haven't studied this extensively, but I have, I have studied it a little bit and I have some clinical experience with it. So I'm about to provide a, an explanation through an example that probably explains some people who suffer from, from blushing anxiety, maybe not all people. So, but I, I think there's a chance that it actually has explanatory power with really anyone that has blushing anxiety. Okay, so uh, so let's. Um, I'll provide an example to illustrate my conceptualization as to how this develops. 
So a boy enters high school. You know, he's transitioning from junior high to high school. He's 14 years old. He is kind of nervous. He goes to school, and he, he meets a group of kids that he doesn't know. He bumps. He's at lunch, and there's a group of kids, and he's like, oh, I, maybe I could be their friend, but he's a, little, he's a little weary. He doesn't know. And he's pretty nervous. You know, he's at lunch, and he's looking at these kids, and he's like, oh, my God, I hope this goes well. And when he's nervous, as we've established, people sometimes blush. And so and let's say he's a white kid, and you can really see his blushing. So he, he blushes a little bit as he is around these other kids. And then someone in the group points out that he's blushing and says, oh, my God, you're blushing. You're so beet red. Or say the kid trips or something and, and, and stands up and, say, and he's just like so embarrassed and his, and his face turns beet red. And then other kids are like, ha, 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 that kid, he's, he's blushing. He's so, he's so embarrassed. And the kid, he experiences this moment as an intense humiliation. So this is important, is that for some people, if they would experience this, they'd just be like, ha ha, okay, I'm blushing. But for a particular set of people, they would experience this as not only just kind of humiliating, but but intensely humiliating. And their fear response would kick in, because as social animals, we are intensely afraid of rejection from the tribe, because back in the olden days, that meant that we were flung out into the wilderness and to die. And so we have an evolved uh, fear of being rejected by our, our peers. And so he, he trips, he blushes, someone points it out. He has an intense fear, uh, an intense humiliation, an intense fear response that kicks in. And he, he feels himself blushing. You know, someone's pointing out, oh my God, you're blushing. And he feels heat in his face and, and he doesn't know what to do. And he just kind of slinks away or he might even just run away. Well, his brain, it, all of our brains are set up to encode experiences like this. When the saber-toothed tiger jumps out at us from the bushes and we manage to get away, our brain encodes that experience. It, it stores every detail of that experience because the, the better we remember that experience, the better we are to uh, avoid that experience in the future so we can live to propagate our genes. And so... When a saber-toothed tiger jumps out at us and we survive, then our brain says, okay, what was, what was the, all the associated factors with that experience that you almost died in? Well, there was an animal in the bush. There was, you were walking on a trail that you couldn't really see very far to your left or right. You, you could see ahead of you, but there are bushes right up next to you on a left or right. You heard the snapping of a twig, the sun was a particular angle. You, you, had, you smelled certain things. Uh, your friend said a particular thing. So your brain doesn't know which detail it needs to encode. So it just it encodes everything. It just stores every detail that it perceived about that moment. The way your friend was talking had nothing to do with a saber-toothed tiger, but your brain doesn't know that. It, it, just, it, just, it just collates all that information and shoves it into your brain as, as a way of... of trying of knowing that situation well enough so you can avoid it so this kid uh, encodes all that encodes is not the right word but i hope you get my meaning is that he 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 lumps that entire experience into one trauma memory 
the fact that he tripped, the fact that he was at school, the clothes he was wearing, the, the voices of the kids around him, uh, the blushing in his face, the way he felt, the way the thoughts he had, all those things become one massive, horrible, traumatic experience. And again, with another kid, in that situation, depending on their background, depending on how they react, they wouldn't encode that as a traumatic experience, but some people do. So this kid, he, he encodes it as, tra as a tra traumatic experience, and his brain says, okay, everything we just experienced, we need to avoid that because that was horrible, and you felt horrible, and you were terrified, and we, we are designed to avoid things that are scary to us. So... Whenever, so in the future, future weeks, future days, future months, whenever he's a little socially anxious, the trauma of being humiliated by blushing is triggered. So say he's in class and a teacher calls on him and he gets a little hot in his face. He gets a little flushed in his face little, and he, he, he senses maybe I'm blushing. And that triggers the trauma that he went through at an earlier time, and his brain goes into overload uh, uh, mode and, is, and says, you are about to be eaten by a tiger. You are threatened. You are going to die. And the blood rushes away from your, from your uh, thinking parts of your brain. It rushes toward your muscles. You blush. And your, your body is designed for fight or flight at that, at that point. And, and then that uh, is another traumatic event because you can't think in a situation like that. The teacher's calling on you, and it triggers that old trauma that you went through when you tripped, and you can't think, and you say something stupid, and then the class laughs at you, and you blush, and you're mortified and you're humiliated and it, and you're terrified and that is just and that compounds the the PTSD by giving you yet another example to call upon in your brain as to what is to be avoided and after a while the kid learns that if he just stays home these things won't happen and so he drops out of school or he figures he smokes a lot of pot and he figures out a way to get kicked out of school so he doesn't have to go to school anymore. And he realizes that when he just stays home and he just stays in the basement and he just plays video games, that everything's going to be okay and that no one is going to humiliate him and he'll never blush and he'll never make a fool out of himself, which is something that he desperately needs to avoid because he uh, he has PTSD. You know, it's the same process for someone who was traumatized in the military. You know, a young man goes to war and he enters some sort of uh, battle of some sort, some sort of fight with, I don't know the words, but, you know, guns are being fired at each other. And he's terrified, naturally. He he sees a friend die, and he walks over to him, and his friend expires right before his eyes as he's holding him. Bullets are flying overhead. Things are exploding, and, and he's convinced he's going to die, and he has the natural intense fear response that any human has in that situation. But let's say as he, he survives the experience, but his brain has encoded all these experiences as associated with the fear. So 
Um, you know, everything that he happened, everything that happened, not just the guy that died, but the color of blood, the smell of dust, the sound of gunfire, helicopters overhead, palm trees, or, you know, all the things, the, the smell of bricks or uh, certain car sounds, everything becomes associated with that terror. Well, he returns to the United States, and whenever he runs across anything that reminds him, uh, then he, he, his fear response is triggered. And he, uh, this is, you know, this is, again, normally adaptive because it helps us to avoid threats like saber-toothed tigers or almost falling off a cliff or almost drowning. These, these near-death experiences, as at least perceived by the brain— uh, are supposed to be avoided, right? And so the brain needs to remember that. Well, when you're at war, uh, it's a similar kind of thing, right? There's there's the threat of being killed, and so the the brain encodes all this. And so the guy comes back to the United States, and he he hears a helicopter, and it triggers his fear response, and he has a PTSD reaction. He sees a, a gunfight on TV. It triggers his fear response, and he has a severe distressful negative fear reaction. Well, it's it's the same when it comes to the blushing. Because of those initial events and then the compounding events after of blushing and the fear response, and, and don't underestimate the intense fear response that some people can have in that situation. It can be just as intense, if not more intense, than some vets who actually go to war. The, 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 some people can experience fear uh, for things that other people wouldn't be afraid of in a way the fear can be just as big as someone who comes back or who experiences war and, and actually people are dying next to them. So it's a subjective experience and we can't, we can't know what sort of fear someone goes through by just gauging how dangerous the situation was, if that makes any sense. Anyway, so, so you can imagine over time as you, you, you blush you're humiliated, you're terrified, and then you try to avoid blushing, and then that leads to more blushing, which leads to more terror. And I, again, I don't use the word terror lightly. It's actual full-on terror. Your body is, is freaking out, and your brain is freaking out. Uh, and, you, and you match all this up with so, you know, socializing with people that you don't really trust all that well, blushing response, hot in the face, not being able to think, making a fool out of yourself, extreme terror, you know, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Well, you can imagine that for this kid at the University of Washington, he wakes up in the morning and is just like, I can't do it anymore. And I'm depressed about my life. Now, this is all because people don't get treated, which I'll get more into in a second here. Um. Uh, now, uh, another part of this that needs to be discussed before I go into treatment is that, as with any anxiety, there's a component of irrational thinking. For example, there are people who are terribly afraid of spiders, even though they only see a spider once every six months. Well, when they see a spider once every six months, their body is 99% sure, or maybe 100% sure, that that spider is going to kill them. They have some kind of catastrophic idea about what is going to happen if that spider manages to get to them. But 
we all know rationally that the spider is not likely to be harmful at all. Um, I know someone who's terrified of spiders, and whenever he sees a spider, he's convinced it's, I can't remember, I think in the Northwest we have like just a couple venomous spiders. I think brown recluse is one of them. And he's completely convinced whenever he sees a spider, it's like, oh, it's a brown recluse. It's got to be a brown recluse. <laughs> and for myself who grew up with, I grew up in a, a house in the woods in on the Smash Plateau and there were spiders and centipedes and potato bugs, we called them, and um, ants and uh, earwigs. And, you know, there were so many mosquitoes and and what we call mosquito eaters. There were, there were just, there were just insects everywhere. And I, for a good amount of time, my bedroom was in the basement, which meant that even more spiders and more insects were just in my, in my bedroom. Uh, I would venture to say on an average day, there were probably at least one or two insects or spiders that were in my room and I just didn't know it until I was like, oh, there's a spider. And so I'm extremely comfortable with spiders. And so when I see a spider, I assume that it's not harmful. I just think, well, it's, you know, it's the, the chance of that spider, uh, the chance of that spider killing me or even slightly harming me is extremely low. And so now this isn't to say I don't have at least some fear response when I see like a tarantula or something. But anyway, so people who have anxiety about spiders, they, exaggerate the likelihood of something bad happening to them. fear of flying in planes, right? People get people who have a fear of airplanes, their body or even their cognitive mind is very afraid that the plane is going to crash, even though the likelihood of that plane crashing is extremely low. It's like winning the lottery or something. Uh, and the same goes for fear of blushing. For people who don't have a fear of blushing, when they blush, they're just like, oh, maybe maybe someone saw it, maybe they didn't. Uh, and even if they did see it, you know, they're, they're probably not thinking much of it. Or maybe, maybe this is a little embarrassing to, to my life. But for people who have a fear of blushing, who have anxiety about blushing, they're 100% sure that they are blushing whenever they're slightly embarrassed. They're 100% sure that, the other, that everyone can see it. And they're 100% sure that other people have extremely negative evaluations of them, not only about their behavior, but about their blushing. So, so that's important to understand is that it's not the blushing, just like it's not the flying, just like it's not the spiders. It's the anxiety about the blushing. And it's not irrational in the sense that all we have to do is like slap them across the face and say, stop worrying about these things. It's related to trauma. When you have traumatic experiences, you can't rid yourself of that. You have to actually go through a, a fairly rigorous treatment modality, which I will talk about after the break. So let's talk about that after the break. All right, we're back from the break. So let's go into treatment here. This is my treatment. Um, uh, but first, I'm going to talk about things that don't involve my treatment. For instance, there's, there's medical treatments that have been uh, proposed. For example, there are medications you can take, like beta blockers, like I was talking about earlier. Beta blockers, I think, are used for hypertension or, or heart problems, but they, they can also be used to basically block the nervous system process involved in, ner in your body uh, shaking and sweating and blushing when you are embarrassed. 
that's why I took beta blockers when I used to teach at first for well for the first 10 or 15 years, because when I taught, I would have that shaky voice. I would have that shaky hand and I would uh, blush and sweat. And when I took beta, beta blockers, it, it eliminated that response. I, I, uh, cognitively was still scared. I was still, it wasn't like it took away my anxiety. It's not an anti-anxiety medication, but it reduced my anxiety because I wasn't, I didn't have the additional worry of like worrying that everyone could see that I was terrified. <laughs> and so, so beta blockers is a medication that can be used to treat blushing. Also, clonidine is used sometimes, and Botox is used because if you if you kill the nerves in you kill that part of your body, then it doesn't have a response anymore. So, some people actually use Botox, and obviously, you can use anti-anxiety medication to not that won't treat the blushing necessarily, but it'll treat the anxiety about the blushing. So, again, I just want to really stress, particularly to you people who have anxiety about blushing. The blushing is not the problem. The problem is you have anxiety about the blushing. Just like, just like someone who comes back from war, and whenever they go over a bridge, they're terrified that a bomb is going to kill them. The problem is not walking over the bridge. You know, we don't want to treat that person and say, okay, you're never going to walk across a bridge for the rest of your life. So the problem is not the bridges. The problem is your PTSD uh, having been to war. So for people who suffer from blushing anxiety, the problem is not being embarrassed. The problem is not uh, social humiliation because we all on a daily basis have at least minor humiliating moments <laughs> and that's just a part of life. So avoiding that is not the answer. The answer is how to treat your anxiety about that normal life experience that the idea is is that you want to get to a place where you can you can be humiliated and you can be you can blush even and not have it get to you or at least just have it only get to you kind of that's the point um so these medical uh, uh treatments are like the beta blockers the botox to in my mind they only get to like the symptom not the cause the uh, if you just eliminate the blushing response, my guess is you still have social anxiety, right? So, so there's that. Okay, um, but maybe for some people, not so much. But anyway, uh, another medical treatment is what the patron wrote about, which is the endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy. Sympathectomy. That word means ectomy means cut or excision, right? And so the sympath you know, is a sympathetic nerve. So they actually will will cut a, a particular nerve that you have or a nerve bundle that you have in your body. Imagine that. You're basically paralyzing a certain part of your body. It doesn't paralyze you, but it, it cuts off the, the sympathetic response, which is, you know, we evolved for a reason and to cut it off is is not so great. And so it destroys the nerve, just kills it. And you can't restore it, right? It's just, it's just gone. And the people usually use endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy to treat sweaty palms. There's some people who have extremely sweaty, chronic sweaty palms. And one of the possible um, uh, treatments of that is to cut this nerve, which causes the sweaty palms essentially to stop. 
But as you can imagine, destroying that nerve can have a lot of horrible side effects. And in fact, in some areas, maybe in the United States, it's actually banned as a procedure because it it it's, it doesn't make any sense to do that. There's so many other treatments to this, and there's so many other ways to approach it. You know, if you have sweaty palms your entire life, you're likely just embarrassed because whenever you shake someone's hand, you're you're sweaty, which indicates that you're nervous, which indicates something something supposedly horrible about you. And cut, cutting a nerve in your body that you need is so drastic when if you just went through psychotherapy to accept the fact that sometimes you have sweaty palms and some people aren't going to like it, um, it's so much less invasive and so much more functional to have psychotherapy around that. You know, for blushing, for instance, uh, to cut a nerve in your body to stop you from blushing I understand why people go there. I'm not going to shame people for thinking about it because when you're suffering so much with anxiety, you're going to you're going to look toward uh, any answer possible, right? Like the guy who killed himself. He killed himself because he saw that as a solution to his suffering. So the suffering is great and you're going to look toward drastic measures to help you. But I'm here to tell you that psychotherapy can absolutely cure it. Uh, as I've talked about in other episodes, PTSD and anxiety is absolutely curable. And I don't use that word lightly, cure. Psychotherapy can absolutely cure your anxiety, can absolutely cure your social anxiety, can absolutely cure your blushing anxiety and your PTSD. So let me just briefly talk about that. So as a caveat to this talk, I'm going to be talk I'm going to be very briefly talking about these things and you can listen to other episodes in which I talk about each one of these things more in depth, but but there are six components that I would propose. Usually there's only a f- couple of these components that are proposed in the literature, but I I propose six different components that should be considered. You don't necessarily have to try all of these, but you should try um you should try to figure out which one of these they need. In fact, they might need all of them. Um, and actually, I have them ranked in, by importance or by likelihood of working. So number one is, ex, is behavioral therapy or exposure. So it's complicated, but um, let me provide one example of, of what it might look like. So let's say someone with blushing anxiety came to me and asked me for treatment. Well, I would lay out the exposure therapy model to them, and I would get them on board and then I would help them to identify their level of fear and their level of anxiety and their level of distress. And we would work on awareness of that distress and awareness and then also management of that. So deep breathing, relaxation, um, other kinds of ways of reducing your stress level. And then in session, I would tell the client to try to evoke the blushing response in front of me. And then they would uh, say, I don't know, talk about something embarrassing. And then they talk about something embarrassing. They would blush and I would say, okay, I can see that you're blushing. And because they have such anxiety around blushing, even though they're around me, whom they supposedly trust by then, they will have a fear response to that. They will have a, an intense, traumatic response to that. 
And then I asked them how distressed are you? And they're like, okay, well, I don't know, about a seven. I'm like, okay, let's, let's engage in your relaxa- relaxation techniques that we established earlier. Deep breathing, grounding yourself, telling yourself everything's okay, relaxing your muscles, um, you know, all those kinds of soothing things that you do to yourself to help bring your distress level down. Okay, I see that you're still blushing. How do you feel now? And you just rinse and repeat this until the client says, until the until you can get the client to blush in front of you without having any distress at all. So you do this a number of times, and eventually, say a couple of sessions, two or three sessions, four or five sessions down the down the road, you say, "Okay, client, I need I want you to evoke the blushing response. Tell me an embarrassing story." The client does so. The client blushes, and then. I say, okay, I see that you're blushing. How distressed are you? And the client says, I'm not distressed at all. Well, this is because the brain adapts to situations. And when we rinse and repeat a situation, the brain habituates to it. Uh, The first time I went snorkeling, I put my face under the water with the snorkel and I almost, uh, I kicked in, you know, I couldn't breathe underwater. My body would not let me breathe underwater because my body was like, your face is underwater. I'll be damned if I'm going to let you breathe in a breath. <laughs> and so for the, for the first number of times I went snorkeling, my body would not let me do it. Well, over time, I habituated to it. Now, my brain cognitively did not my, – the first time I went snorkeling, my, cog, my, my uh, conscious mind – knew that snorkeling was completely safe. I had a snorkel in my mouth and everything's fine. But my body did not think it was okay. Well, upon snorkeling a number of times, I eventually could snorkel no problem without any fear response at all. And my conscious mind never changed from the first time I went snorkeling to the 20th time I went snorkeling. My conscious mind knew that snorkeling was safe. But what changed was my unconscious mind or my body or my limbic system or whatever you want to say. My, the, the part of my brain I don't have control over. That's what has to habituate. And that's an important understanding of PTSD. And that's an important of understanding recovery from blushing anxiety is that uh, – and we'll get into your conscious mind, which can help. But what really needs to change is your unconscious mind needs to habituate to something. And you can only do that through experience. You can't do that by convincing yourself. People will, with blushing anxiety or any anxiety, will try to convince themselves. They'll be like, everything's okay. It's, you know, it's not a big deal. And then they throw themselves into a situation and it's terrifying and their body reacts. I've talked about this before in the podcast, but you know, I used to have a medical anxiety and I knew 100% sure, my conscious mind knew everything was fine. I'd go in for a vaccine and my conscious mind would be like, dude, everything's fine. There is no risk of anything happening. Or the risk is so, so low that it's not even worth talking about. But my body was 100% convinced that something was very wrong with that. So I can't white knuckle it and convince myself that everything's okay. I have to slowly habituate my body to that experience. And that is what we call exposure. And so, so this is what we do with social anxiety and specifically with blushing anxiety. So over time, the client is totally fine with blushing in front of me. And then I I say, okay, now I want you to go to the mall 
and I just want you to walk around the mall. So the, the patron who wrote in uh, when he was 19, the mall terrified him. And so we would, we would work up to that. So we would incrementally work up to the mall. At some point we would say, okay, I think you're ready for the mall. Are you ready for the mall? And he's like, okay, well, I think I'm ready for the mall. And then he would walk around the mall uh, but he wouldn't talk to anybody. He'd just walk around and he would monitor his blushing response. I might even go with him and say like, okay, what's your distress level? And he'd say, uh, you know, I think I'm blushing. And I'd be like, yeah, you are blushing. And, he, and he'd go, okay, well, I, my distress level, I'm a, I'm a six or seven. I need to go. And we'd go, okay, well, let's step outside for a second. Deep breathe. Everything's fine. You're not trapped. Everything's okay. Okay. Are you ready to go back in? Okay. I'm ready to go back in. No pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. Go back inside. Blush. Distress response, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And eventually the body becomes habituated to it and you can walk through the mall and blush and there's no, uh, there's no fear traumatic response. Then we might walk up the ladder of intensity and have him walk up to a girl and say hello or a clerk or some, you know, someone that, will, that he's particularly terrified of. And again, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat until the body gets habituated to it. And then, lo and behold, the blushing anxiety is eradicated. It's a very simple process that is hard to do because it the, every step of the way provokes an intense fear response and distress response in the person that they have learned to avoid and they have a habit of, of avoiding. Uh, the idea is not to traumatize them by having them extremely distressed, like a eight or nine or ten, but to have them somewhat distressed. Because if they're not somewhat distressed, then the situation isn't provocative enough. But anyway, so that's exposure. Okay. The second thing that should be done, which is a close second, is cognitive therapy. You, as a therapist, will say to the client, "Okay, when you blush." what's going through your mind? You know, what, what thoughts do you have about your blushing? And the person might say, well, it, it indicates that I'm weak. It indicates that I'm embarrassed. It indicates that I am not cool. It indicates that I um, have insecurities. It indicates that no one likes me. It indicates that, you know, all these thoughts that they have that go through their mind. And then you, in therapy, you just challenge all, all those thoughts. You know, it's like, it, Okay, uh, one, so what I would do with someone that blushed, I would say, okay, what are your thoughts about blushing? And they're like, well, whenever I get embarrassed, I blush, and then people notice, and then they think that I'm stupid, and they don't want to be my friend, and that kind of thing. And I'd say, okay, so you believe, one, that when you embarrass, you get you blush. Is it possible that sometimes you get embarrassed, and you don't actually blush at all? And they're like, huh, and so you sort of challenge that. Okay, when you blush, you believe that the other person notices that you blush. And sometimes it might be they might not even notice because you might not be blushing that much. Let's challenge that thought. Then another thought, okay, if they see you blushing, you think that they automatically judge you for that. Yeah. Well, is it possible that when they see you blush, they either think nothing of it or they even feel affinity for you because... Everyone knows what it's like to feel insecure and embarrassed. And so maybe when they see you blush, they're like, oh, I like that about him because um, he is vulnerable in a way that I am vulnerable and therefore maybe we can be friends. And so this is all cognitive therapy. You're just breaking everything down. 
as a as a therapist, you might want to self-disclose in the way that I have done in this episode. You talk about your own embarrassments and your own ways of processing that. You normalize it. This is all perspective building and reframing, and co- it's all cognitive therapy. Narrative therapy is in here as well. And so you might also engage in, in self-talk, like, okay, the next time you blush, what can you say to yourself that can help you in that situation? Well, maybe if I said that blushing is a cute thing instead of an embarrassing thing, maybe that'll help. You know, it's, maybe that'll help, yeah, okay. All right, so that's exposure, behavior therapy, and we have cognitive therapy. The, a third, which is kind of a, a more distant third, we, I, I would have the next four things. Uh, number, number three is psychodynamic therapy. Early childhood relationships are likely to blame for this. For example, in my experience, people who suffer from any kind of social anxiety or really any kind of anxiety at all were typically neglected as children, either severely neglected, like by someone who was severely depressed or a parent who abandoned them or parents who were drug addicted, these kinds of things. uh, Severe neglect will lead to severe anxiety uh, almost all the time. But there can be subtle neglect. There can be subtle neglect, like say you grew up in a family with 10 siblings, but your parents were great, but they just didn't really have enough time for you. Well, in my experience, that can, re- that can result in social anxiety later on in life. Because essentially, when you're very young, you're two, three, four, five years old, you have experiences of fear and you reach out for help and no one is there. And so this fear response sticks with you later in life into adulthood. And so psychodynamic therapy, so not only trying to get at insight into why you would have social anxiety and blushing anxiety, maybe you were criticized a lot as a kid, maybe you were humiliated when you were young. So having insight around that, because insight is power, but also providing corrective experiences for that client so that the therapist can provide corrective emotional experiences, which I've talked about in other episodes if you want more info, info on that. Okay, so we had behavior exposure therapy, we have cognitive therapy, or psychodynamic, and number four, we have attachment therapy, which is very similar to psychodynamic therapy, but it bears sort of parsing out in that it's related to attachment. And again, similar to psychodynamic therapy, you're looking for insight into how attachment plays a role in blushing and how to provide a corrective experience in therapy and how to get corrective experiences in one's life. So Uh, For instance, with this patron who wrote in, uh, if he was 19 and he had just had that experience in the mall where he walked up to that girl and had that intense blushing experience, once we got over some of the issues through exposure therapy, I I might ask him actually to reach out to that girl and uh, have a conversation about this and um, have a real experience with that person. You know, again, that might be overwhelming, but um, that's be something to think about. Number five, we have humanistic therapy. Uh, gestalt part work comes to mind in terms of uh, let's talk with the blushing and let's talk with the embarrassment and let's, you know, doing talking between parts. Also, humanistic therapy regarding who do you want to be and, and what's the meaning of your life. Uh, do you want to live the rest of your life worrying about blushing and worrying about humiliation? Do you? You know, say you're on your deathbed and you're 85 years old and you look back on your life and you spent 90% of it worrying about blushing. Is that the, is that the kind of life you want to lead? 
now again, this is difficult if if it's PTSD related because it's not like people have choice about PTSD. But the point is, is that sometimes taking responsibility for one's life and and prioritizing what's important in life can actually help to at least direct your goals in life. You know, um, humanistic psychology around believing in yourself, self esteem work. Um, there's humanistic psychology and psychotherapy is quite broad, but um, I'm throwing it in there as a something I consider whenever I treat these kinds of issues. And then number six, the final one here is social skills training. The, the more social skills you have, uh, the, the better you're going to fare in situations like that, depending on the issue. Um, you know, so say the patron came in, he's 19 and he's like, Oh my God, I'm, you know, I just had this humiliating experience in the mall. And then I might, you know, in addition to all these other things, we might say, okay, when you walk up to someone in the mall and you start blushing, what can you say? What you know? Because a lot of people with blushing anxiety don't consider the possibility that they could they could have a response that will account for their anxiety. It's similar to speaking in public anxiety. For instance, for myself, uh, I ad- I don't do this very often, but I admire people who do. Who, when they are anxious in public speaking and their hands are shaking and they're they're screwing up their speech or whatever. I find it really great when people say, oh my God, I'm really nervous. I'm sorry. <laughs> or, oh my God, uh, you know, I don't know why, but I'm, I'm having like a lot of nervousness. I'll, I'll get over it. Uh, that's a way of instantly reducing your anxiety, right? You're talking in front of a group of people and you're just like, you're starting to freak out and you're noticing that you're shaking and you're one, you're worrying that you're shaking. And then you just sort of laugh it off and you say, um, so by the way, my hands are shaking because I'm a little nervous right now. Uh, but, um, you know, we'll get through this together, <laughs> you know, so just make a joker. Um, the same goes true for blushing. If you have an option, a social skill of saying something like, so I'm blushing right now. I don't really know why <laughs> or, so I blush easily, by the way, and so I just want to let you know that I'm blushing, I think. <laughs> you know, just you, there's ways of being graceful about reacting to embarrassing situations that instantly um, sort of de-escalate the social situation and even provide you with some option of reducing your own anxiety. And so, um, so there's that. Oh, uh, okay. So again, we got... Exposure behavior, we got cognitive, we got psychodynamic, we got attachment, we have humanistic, and we have social skills training. I want to get back to cognitive therapy. Um, there's there's a there's something that I often do with people with anxiety, which is I'll have them attack it with anger in their mind. And so, for instance, one thing that I might recommend to people who have blushing anxiety is to say. Is to have a perspective, a narrative, and a, an automatic thought system that involves the following. So, so with the 19-year-old patron, he comes into me and I say, okay, um, let's say uh, the girl you walked up to in the mall, let's say she saw you uh, blushing, and let's say she really judges you for that, and she just thinks you're a ridiculous person. What do you think about that? And we'll have a talk. We'll have a conversation about it, and then eventually the client might say, "Well, I don't know. It just seems kind of judgmental for people to judge me for blushing when it's not my fault." And I would say, "Yeah, exactly." So it so if anyone 
decides to reject you or judge you or criticize you or think ill of you just because you blush, which is a normal human response, then fuck that person. And you don't want to be friends with that person because that's bullshit. For someone to judge you and criticize you or reject you for a simple thing like blushing, which is kind of a cute response anyway, then that person doesn't deserve to be your friend. And so that that's, a, again, a cognitive, narrative, uh, automatic thought-oriented way of self-talk oriented way of trying to deal with with that uh, response and the and the anxiety around it now if someone has severe PTSD around blushing then that's not going to uh, completely eliminate the trauma response but it might help kind of get them through it anyway okay so that is my long episode on blushing anxiety patron please let me know what you think and people out there who are listening let me know what you think as well I from a brief search on the internet, uh, realize that there's a lot of people who suffer from this. And the thing that I'll say to people who suffer from this is there's an answer. You want to engage in psychotherapy with someone that understands how to treat this. I would suspect that only a minority of psychotherapists know how to treat this properly or even know that it exists. And so you want to find someone who understands anxiety, who specializes in it, who understands exposure and who understands cognitive therapy at the very least. And someone that comes across to you as someone who you uh, are convinced that they empathize with you and, and have compassion for you. I say all this because I, I will ask, I'll tell people, you know, get a therapist. And, and years ago I would have thought, well, you know, just any therapist will do because, you know, all therapists are good. But I've received so many emails from, people from you guys telling me about just these awful experiences in therapy. And I've realized that I don't know the percentage, but there are bad therapists out there. And even among the good therapists, there are some therapists that don't really understand anxiety very well. You know, anxiety is a, although a very common experience for some reason in our culture, we just don't, even within the field of psychotherapy, there's not, people don't necessarily know what's happening with it. Now, having said that, I would guess if you picked a random therapist, they would probably be good with this because it's not that rare of a condition. But anyway, my point is, is go out. If you're suffering from blushing anxiety, particularly if you're at the point where you're considering suicide, know that there is a solution and know that there are therapists out there that can help. Maybe the first couple of therapists you go to aren't any good and you got to keep trying. Uh, that happens sometimes. And I apologize for that for my field. But once you get to a good one, I can almost guarantee you that you can have symptom reduction, if not complete eradication of symptoms. I've worked with people, um, not specifically with blushing anxiety uh, only, but I've worked with people with social anxiety and with PTSD and various other anxieties and had success uh, pretty quickly because if you do it right, you can change the way your body responds to things. And we have a lot of research helping us guide us in that effort. And so uh, please, please reach out to somebody and get help for that. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Uh, it, we're running a promotion for Talkspace. Talkspace is an online therapy organization. And if you're looking for a therapist and you're having trouble finding one and or you just want to talk to someone every day because the talk space, you get to talk to your counselor every day, go to talkspace.com and sign up and get and hook yourself up with an online counselor. Uh, 
it's a legit organization that makes sure that every, every counselor is fully licensed and trained and all that kind of stuff. And if you use the promo code Kirk, K-I-R-K, you get a discount. So if you're curious about online counseling, go to Talkspace, promo code Kirk, you get a discount. And also they, uh, Talkspace, if they get enough of you to sign up, then they might become an ongoing sponsor in the future. Uh, so please do that if you're interested. All right. Take care of yourself out there. Uh, please, please try to get help if you're suffering from really any kind of anxiety because you truly, truly deserve that. You truly deserve to be symptom-free and you truly deserve to suffer no more and to, to please don't suffer in silence and don't, you know... We are shamed that we we're shamed for blushing, we're shamed for anxiety, and then we're shamed for reaching out for help, and that's all a bunch of crap. And we all need to uh, spit in the face of that ridiculousness. Fuck you for telling me I can't reach out for help. Fuck you for making me feel stupid for being anxious, and fuck you for making me feel stupid for blushing. It's bullshit. It's cultural nonsense, and we need to get rid of that because we all deserve it. <laughs> Thank you.